This special edition episode of CRST the Podcast has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. Hello listeners, welcome to this podcast mini-series entitled Genetics and Eye Care Today. I'm Dr. John Gellies, and with me today is Dr. Liz Yu. Hi. So, I'm an optometrist at the Cornea Laser Eye Institute and the CLEI Center for Keratoconus in Teaneck, New Jersey, where I'm the Director of Specialty Contact Lenses, and I'm also a uh, Clinical Assistant Professor at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School in the Department of Ophthalmology. And I am an anterior segment surgeon and partner at Virginia Eye Consultants in the Eastern Shores of Virginia. I'm also an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Eastern Virginia Medical School. This series will guide listeners through discussions about the evolving world of genetic testing and eye care, and will review how innovations in genetic testing have affected screening, diagnosis, and the care of patients with corneal dystrophies and keratoconus. Be sure to go back earlier in your feed and listen to the first episode of this series. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe to the series to get our short monthly episodes. You'll also want to check out the Genetics and Eye Care Today website for articles and other resources that explore these exciting developments. We'll link this site in the show notes. Now that that's all out of the way, let's go ahead and jump in. All right. So, Dr. Gellis. I wanted to ask you about how you are monitoring patients with keratoconus. So when you have different regimens and treatments with keratoconus, you recognize, obviously, that this can be a more personalized process using the risk score data from an Avagen genetic eye test. John, I'm curious, as someone who closely monitors these patients, how does a genetic profile affect your decisions to observe versus refer or change your treatment plans with regards to such patients with keratoconus? Uh, That's a great question, Liz. Generally, genetic testing really adds a new layer and more actionable data to my diagnostic data set. You know, when we look at these data sets, obviously they're including the clinical observations. So, you know, what are we seeing on the various different scans that we're doing? You know, in our office, we're using not only corneal topography, but corneal tomography, some biomechanics and aberrometry. Um, but then there's also, you know, the demographic sort of stuff. So, you know, what, what's their background? Do they have a history of atopy? You know, do they have connective tissue disorders? Anything that would be, um, you know, correlated with keratoconus. But those are generally not uh, the, the demographics and lifestyle sort of things are not generally actionable on their own. You know, now we have genetics to add to this as well. So as we start to get, you know, all these pieces, the corneal curvature or shape, the, you know, the biomechanics, the, the objective vision, and now adding genetics to this, we really get a complete picture of the individual. Sure. So tell us a little bit more about how this genetic data can personalize keratoconus patient management. So like, let, let's think about patients who have, you know, generally low risk, you know, based on their clinical observations and their demographic factors, right? So let's say, you know, the anatomy is somewhat borderline or slightly questionable. We're talking about like minor irregularities in the front surface of the cornea. Um, You know, there might be some slight, you know, refractive change or anatomical change that may happen with these eyes. 
um, where you're going, eh, that really isn't enough to do too much for this individual. Um, or, you know, anatomy looks totally normal, but they have a positive family history. You know, before we have, uh, you know, the Avigen test, this perceived low risk, you know, we may have said, well, these individuals are not a real high risk factor. I'll see them every, you know, six to 12 months. And, you know, in some practices, that interval may be even longer, maybe 12 months, you know, but in the era of genetic testing, where risk is much more certain, you know, I can know early and personalize the management to that individual. So, you know, when I have a patient who has had the Avigen test and is identified with high risk, my follow-up interval definitely changes in those individuals. Instead of saying, hey, you know, we're going to see every six to 12 months, somebody who's been identified with a genetic profile for high risk, I'm going to say this individual needs to come in every three months. And then those changes that I may have thought were, you know, insignificant are now something that's much, much more actionable. And with this information, you know, when you are seeing them from every three months to six and 12 months, what is an absolute must have in a diagnostics as you are seeing these patients in follow-up? So generally, when I'm looking at these individuals, I'm looking at changes to their corneal topography and tomography. So we're looking at changes to the symmetry to the front surface of the cornea, specifically, you know, kind of what was outlined in the Reserve Benowitz papers, you know, so long ago about IS ratio. So, you know, the comparison of the top to the bottom of the cornea, is that getting, you know, more asymmetric with time? Are we starting to see more axis skewing? Um, you know, are we seeing more steepening of the anterior curvature? Uh, if we go to the elevations, we're really looking for, you know, are we having uh, more of an elevation change on the front or the posterior surface of the cornea? Um, and, you know, changes to corneal thickness, not just the thinnest point, but also the, uh, the change of that corneal thickness as we go out towards the, uh, the periphery of the cornea. And, you know, even breaking down thickness even further to epithelial thicknesses and looking at thinning over the apex, kind of thickening around the base. So when we look at all these sorts of changes in metrics over time, those are the sorts of things that we're really looking at. But if we put all of those in the context of having a high risk score, now all those little micro changes that may happen on the area, I'm now much more concerned for that individual about change than somebody that I didn't know that and I perceived them as being low risk. And how does a patient with that high genetic risk score affect your actual referral pattern? Well, well I'm definitely much more likely to refer a patient for treatment if they have a high risk score, but you know, only mild signs of keratoconus on clinical evaluation. So, you know, in many of these individuals where like a slight change in their corneal topography may have been actionable in the way that I'm going to see them for more frequent follow-up or, or more of a, you know, wait and see, those individuals, their changes are now significantly more important. And those small changes become a refer and treat rather than a wait and see. Uh, because as we all know, corneal collagen cross-linking works and early treatment with it is going to save vision. So having this test really, uh, you know, really significantly changes the, the way that you're going to practice and the actionable 
or rather the actions that you're going to take for these individuals. So John, I've even noticed that in my patients who may be mild or moderate, you know, based on what I'm seeing with their topography and maybe their high astigmatism, but then, you know, I find out that their actual habits or their medical history also includes eye rubbing and allergic conjunctivitis. So now this elevates my concerns about them being a moderate suspect. And then I'm thinking, you know, I really want to get that Abigen risk score um, and then see an allergy specialist. What do you think about that kind of paradigm of me starting with the clinical picture and then moving forth that way? I think it's a really interesting question, Liz. And I, I think what you know, we're, we're going to see as we get more and more comfortable with genetics in general in the eye care space is that as time goes on, we might think of risk scoring from genetics like the Avigen test as the first piece of data that we should consider getting rather than the last piece of data, right? Because if we put everything into the context of the overall objective risk of this patient based on their genes, then we take those clinical factors and those marginal clinical findings now become way more important to the overall picture, right? So like if we think of somebody who, you know, clinically we may have said, yeah, they're like a 45 diopter, you know, with two and a half diopters of oblique astigmatism and like a 1.4 diopter IS, we're kind of looking at that and going, you know, that's kind of very mild, maybe a form frost sort of case. But if we put that into the context of this individual has a really high genetic risk score and we're seeing those sorts of changes, that individual I'm now watching much, much more closely than I would have otherwise. That's a great point that you make that instead of using the Avigen as per se a tiebreaker in these borderline patients, if I had the advantage of seeing the Avigen risk score initially, I wouldn't need you know, more than one maybe suspicious area for me to say, we're not going to consider refractive surgery, or we need to watch more closely, or we need to um, encourage the patient and recommend earlier treatment. So I really like that perspective of how you just uh, mentioned that. So in our previous episode, we reviewed the polygenic aspects of Avigen, the genetic eye test. But what about the monogenic aspects of the test? Dr. Nazneen Aziz explains more. When a patient undergoes evaluation with the Avigen genetic test, they are screened for two pathologies at the same time, keratoconus, which is a polygenic disease, and corneal dystrophy, which is monogenic. Monogenic diseases usually occur due to a single gene defect in a patient's genome. For corneal dystrophies, one of the genes we test is TGF-beta-I. Because TGF-beta-I induced corneal dystrophies are determined by the presence or absence of a defective gene, lifestyle changes do not influence whether the disease will occur or progress if a person possesses the defective gene. Therefore, the mere presence or absence of the aberrant gene in question makes this genetic test 
easy to interpret, as the result is a binary yes or no. But the Avogen genetic test does not stop at simply determining whether or not a patient's genotype will lead to corneal dystrophy. Instead, the test results determine which gene variant a patient has, allowing the doctors to subtype their disease. There are more than 70 variants of the TGF-beta-I gene that are linked with corneal dystrophies. Depending on the variants detected in the gene, through the Avogen eye test, a patient present with any of the eight known phenotypes of corneal dystrophy. Different subtypes of corneal dystrophy present at different ages and with different patterns of progression. In some cases, a clinician can determine that the patient has some type of corneal dystrophy, but clinical observations or imaging results may not point to any one specific subtype. In these instances, the doctor who has the Avagen test in their toolkit can confirm their clinical observations with a definitive diagnosis. The addition of genetic data to clinical observations in these patients can lead to earlier, more accurate diagnosis and a treatment plan personalized to their patient. For Genetics and Eye Care Today, I'm Dr. Nazneen Aziz. In this segment, we want to discuss how a refractive surgeon would use genetic data to help guide treatment decisions. Liz, let's imagine a, a patient in their 20s or 30s comes into your practice for a LASIK consultation. And based on the evaluation, you can see they have a suspicious looking cornea. So can you describe you know, what might make it suspicious and what you might do? First of all, the younger the patient, the more heightened my level of suspicion is going to be with any irregular finding or abnormality that I see. So a patient who's coming in in their 40s with a little bit of asymmetric bow tie on topography, I'm going to be a little less concerned than someone who's either 18 to 25 years of age. Because as we know, um, the the cornea naturally cross-links over time. Um, so a younger patient, I definitely am on a more heightened alert. I do want to you know, see that there's symmetry, of course, but any patient who has like a borderline steepness, like greater than 45 diopters or a higher level of astigmatism, irregularity of their astigmatism or like truncated, very central bow ties. Um, these are patients that I would likely run the Avagen genetic eye test. If the test showed a, you know, moderate or higher risk score for keratoconus, I definitely would say because of what I'm seeing on their inherent data from their specific Avagen genetic eye test, plus what I'm seeing objectively with the steepening or the irregularity on the topography, it's enough of a warning for me to say that the strength of the cornea is of concern to me, and I would not perform a corneal-based refractive surgery on this patient. Now, this does open up the opportunity of, one, let's wait and see and see what happens over time, 
or two, if this patient does fit the parameters for ICL surgery, that is always on the table. Nice, nice. I, you know, I think that the Avigen test just offers so much in the way of kind of determining that, like, are, you know, are you going lens-based? Are you going corneal-based? And kind of, you know, figuring out which direction, you know, you might go or might determine to just not do anything. You know, when you um, look at these patients, you know, let's go back to that one. You know, how, how would you treat that 20 to 30 something? John, you bring up such an amazing point because now this patient I have deemed to be a person at risk. I certainly wouldn't consider doing refractive surgery on them. Depending on how high or suspicious my concern was would dictate when I would want them to come back. But the reason for their return is so that I can look at interval imaging, see what the difference maps look like, see if their refraction changes either with respect to myopia or the astigmatism level. Why? Because that younger patient may absolutely require or should be considering collagen cross-linking. Because we have to remember, if this is caught early and we initiate therapy quickly enough, these patients can be true success stories. And now the patient has returned to you with um, significant change in their prescription, which you can discuss with them and the findings that you are seeing. And we know that this will help to at least to stiffen the cornea, which will stabilize their shape and their disease progress um, will also hopefully stabilize, especially because they are the best group of corneas that do stabilize with cross-linking as compared to older patients. Um, And this is how I would approach a patient where I'm getting that higher risk score from Avigen plus suspicious findings um, objectively with the patient. So Liz, if we kind of switch gears now and let's like, let's imagine a patient comes in with those kind of borderline findings and you have that Avigen test you know, prior to, they want refractive surgery, you know, how are you going to proceed with those individuals now that you have that data from the Avigen test? I would look at the actual risk score analysis on the Avigen test to kind of guide me. So obviously, if I was suspicious enough in order to order the Avigen test on my refractive evaluation, then I'm already thinking that ICL is an option. And ICL can likely be an option regardless of that risk score analysis. But if it's a patient who is a high risk, right, for keratoconus, then I certainly am not going to consider any corneal refractive surgery. But if they're like a mild, maybe mild, low, moderate risk of keratoconus um, overall, and then they're coupled with a little bit of slight asymmetry, or maybe it was just some against the rule astigmatism, but their other parameters looked good. For example, a nice thickness to their cornea. Um, For that patient, certainly we could consider something like collagen cross-linking plus PRK um, staged. But 
Again, I do think this is where utilizing the Avagen test can help my decision making process because, you know, of all the different refractive surgery options, considering them, it's still, I want to be able to make that firm recommendation. And for me, part of being able to make that firm and healthy recommendation for the patient, the more knowledge I have, the better armed I am to feel confident with that decision that I'm proceeding with. Liz, that's a great point. You know, the, the use of this test in the, uh, in the stratification and trying to determine, you know, what sort of uh, a procedure might be most appropriate for an individual, like, you know, a normal cornea, low risk, that individual is definitely a go for LASIK versus, you know, somebody who's normal but has a much higher risk, that individual might be a better candidate for ICL. Or if you have somebody who's got a slight irregularity and a low risk of PRK or like a PRK plus cross-linking, um, you know, and, you know, somebody who's high risk plus, you know, irregularity, they're, you know, not treating them at all or, you know, doing cross-linking or then reverting to a lens-based procedure, um, you know, all, it, it, it's just so interesting to see how this test can really guide uh, or, or help to guide, uh, you know, decision-making in, in surgery. Well, thanks for joining us on the second episode of Genetics and Eye Care Today. To stay up to date, subscribe in your podcast app of choice, and you can look out for the next episode to drop in your podcast feed. Next month, we'll discuss how genetic data can support early corneal cross-linking decisions. For now, I'm Liz Yu. And I'm John Gellies asking you to join us next time on Genetics and Eye Care Today.